our scripture from this morning is First uh, Samuel 22, verses 6 through 10. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this, this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and he gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for bringing us all here. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would just open our, our hearts and minds to it as Mark uh, preaches from it now. I pray that your your word would just be alive for us and strengthen us to serve and follow you. Amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. We get to continue in First Samuel. Just a <clears throat> little bit of a review last week. Uh, David is on the run from Saul. Saul is trying to kill him. David has, um, well, he's hungry. He's in need. And he goes to Nob and he inquires of the priest and says, do you have anything to eat for me? And the only thing to eat there is the bread that is left after um, the bread of the presence is, is changed out on a weekly basis. And only the priests are supposed to eat that. And so he gives, the priest gives that to David and David eats it and is strengthened by it. And then he flees to the Philistines and then he flees to the cave. And, and the whole point of is God's providing for him. God is, is taking care of him in his time of need. So even though he's not supposed to eat that bread, technically, uh, because he is in grave danger and in need, the priests give it to him and he is not condemned by anyone, including Christ later on in the New Testament. And so we get to this point now, Saul is pursuing David. Saul, Saul he's, how do you just put this in gentle terms, he's lost his mind. He has become paranoid of everyone and everything that is happening around him. Now, have you ever lashed out or had someone lash out at you for absolutely no apparent reason? You just ask a question and then they snap at you? Yeah, maybe you say, have we done that before? Where we just snap only later to find out that their reaction or realize at the moment that your reaction to that person was not really because of the question that was asked. That, that was like the straw that broke your back. It was like the last thing that you wanted. I don't want to answer this question. And then you lash out at them. Um, you take the hit for something that you had absolutely nothing to do with, or you deliver a hit to somebody that they, they're just innocent. They have nothing going on um, in their lives and why they, this is a simple question or a simple reaction, and you, you snap at them. 
Well, this is the situation that the priests of Nob find themselves. Ahimelech helps David by getting him bread, giving him Goliath's sword, not knowing the situation between David and Saul. But in reality, this issue has nothing to do with the priests providing the bread for David. Saul is lashing out because he hates David. And he hates anyone who is willing to help him, knowingly or not. And those people, in his mind, are guilty of treason against his throne, and they deserve death. You see, Saul is a determined enemy. His hatred and fear of David has continued to grow with each chapter that we've read in 1 Samuel. He tries to kill David, and then he tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, for helping David, and even his daughter works against him by helping David escape. Those around Saul are, at least in his mind, increasingly working against him and working for David. And now he hears from Doeg that the priests have turned against him. Well, if he can't kill David, then he's going to send a message to anyone who is willing to help him. Nothing and no one is going to stop his pursuit of David and those who follow him. He is a determined enemy. But there's actually one who has stood in his way the entire time that Saul has no power over, and that's the Lord. Saul understands that God has rejected him and chosen David instead of pursuing the Lord, he seeks to destroy the one whom God has anointed as a true king of Israel. Let me say that again. Instead of, he understands God is against him, and so instead of going to God to make things right with God, he then pursues the one that God has anointed as true king of Israel and wants to kill him. He's determined to go against the Lord. And he's determined to destroy anyone who might even give a hint of loyalty to his enemy. And I use that word loosely for a reason. It's not just David. Saul is now against God himself. And this is the situation in which the priests find themselves. Their act of helping David in a time of need is helping, uh, in helping someone that they saw as a loyal commander to Saul would have dire consequences not just for the high priest, but for everyone associated with them. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Yes, I have to say I have my reading glasses. This is your future. Okay, 1 Samuel 22, starting in verse 11 through 19. And then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me, to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, 
Let not the king impute anything to his servants or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. And then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. It's kind of a bit of an overreaction, right, we would say, by Saul. Not only does he kill the priests in his presence that day, but he puts to the sword every individual, man, woman, child, and animal that made Nob their home. This is how far Saul has fallen. He has taken the lives of innocent people. Or has he? Ah, I got your attention. Wait, Mark, are you saying... That the people of Nob, who did nothing wrong to Saul, deserve to die? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the priests were not as innocent as we may think. This is a situation in which we have to read the entire book of 1 Samuel in order to better understand what's happening. See, the chapters are not a separate situation. It's not that each chapter in in 1 Samuel is a separate story. They're not separate stories. These are episodes in one continuous story, and each episode affects the others. For instance, the priests in Nob were descendants of Eli, the high priest to whom Samuel was given by his mother to serve the Lord. And in chapter 2, we read about Eli's worthless sons, which is a phrase used to describe those who incite idolatry and are sexually immoral and are liars. They were worthless as priests of the Lord because they didn't know or love the Lord, let alone lead in the worship of the Lord. Eli knew exactly who his sons were and what they were doing, and he did nothing. Oh, he said something like, oh, boys, this is bad don't do this anymore. And they went, no, we're going to continue to do it. And Eli did nothing to stop it. He allowed them to continue to be priests, profaning the name and the worship of the Lord. And so through Samuel, God revealed his punishment for Eli, his sons, and all of his descendants. This is what it says, in chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 30 and 31. Through Samuel to Eli. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. So he had said, you're a part of the priesthood. You can come in and lead and worship. Come in and out of the house of the Lord, the temple, the tabernacle at this point that you will always be doing this. But now the Lord declares, because there was a caveat, okay? As long as you obey me, you can do this. But as soon as you don't, you're gone. This is what he says. 
The Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Saul's killing of the priests, though evil, sinful, and of which he will be held accountable for by God, was also ordained by God to fulfill his punishment against the house of Eli. Now, I'm not going to tell you that this is an easy truth to grab hold of, to wrestle with, to deal with. That's, that's how can God ordain something and then hold people accountable for it? I mean, there's, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. It's not an easy truth. But the answer to it, really the only one that we have, is that God is holy and He punishes those who profane His holiness. To profane His holiness means to belittle, look down upon, to deny that God is holy in all of His ways. And this isn't the only time something like this in Scripture happens. Israel was ordained by God to wipe out all of the people of Canaanite for their idolatrousness, their sinfulness, and their hatred of Yahweh. He let them live for hundreds and hundreds of years living in their sin. He showed them grace until his patience ended. See, that's the thing. People think that God has forever patience, right? No, he's long-suffering, but his patience does come to an end. There is a time when those who profane his name will be held accountable for it. And in the case of the Canaanites, he wiped them off the face of the earth. Or even take Christ himself. If there's anyone who we could say was innocent, it's Christ, right? He did nothing wrong. He obeyed the law perfectly. And yet, in Acts chapter 2, to verse 23, we are told that God ordained that lawless men would crucify him on the cross. God works in ways that we don't understand. He ordained that these men would crucify Christ and these men were held accountable by God for that. Or the Persians coming in and destroying Israel for a punishment, God's punishment to the Israelites for their idolatry and their disobedience. And then he holds them, the Persians, accountable for what they did. God works in ways that we cannot understand. See, that's the thing is, we are not God. And for us to try to grasp and wrestle with it, absolutely. But there is a point that as God's people, we need to rest in the holiness and the power and, and the sovereignty of God that He ordains things that are hard for us to grasp. And yet, this is exactly what He does in this situation. Saul was sinful and wicked for his action towards the priests, but the priests were not as innocent as we may like to think. And yet... Even then, and this is the, this is the beauty. Like, you, if we stopped here, we would go home and we would go, oh my, like, the burden of God punishing sin and like, oh, this is overwhelming. And we should feel that weight. But the beauty of this story, and I think throughout Scripture we see this, if it would end here, We'd be depressed, but it doesn't end here. Even now, in this story, God reveals His grace 
to Eli's house. Let's read the rest of the chapter. Just a few verses, four verses, 20 through 23. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed a priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. And I want you to listen to this. This is, I think, the crux. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. What beautiful words by David. He realizes what has happened. Even in the midst of God's righteous judgment upon Eli's house, there is grace shown. He leaves one man alive, which God actually said would happen in 1 Samuel 2.33. Now, the point of that is so that the man can weep his eyes out until he can't weep anymore because he has no future. But yet, he shows grace. In the midst of judgment, grace by God is given. Abiathar escapes the sword and he flees, but where does he run? He runs into the presence of the true anointed king where he finds safety. And if you are here on a regular basis, my hope right now, your mind just goes click. Ah, I know where Mark's going to take this. David says, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life also seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Abiathar escapes rightly deserved death because he is part of the rejected priestly line of Eli by finding life in the presence of the true king. He doesn't run to Saul. He runs to David. My prayer is that who God is and who we are as God's people are clearly seen and understood in this passage. And I say as God's people because that's as pre- precisely who 1 Samuel is written to. 1 Samuel is not written to Egyptians. It's not written to the Philistines or the Assyrians or anybody else but the nation of Israel who are God's people. He wants to teach his people something about himself and who he is. And as we read this chapter, my hope is this, is this is what we see, that we have a determined enemy. God's people have a determined enemy. In chapter 22, Saul is determined to kill David and anyone associated with him in order to prevent David's taking of the throne. We today have a determined enemy in sin, death, and Satan. These enemies are determined to distract deceive, and to rule over God's people. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's our adversary. That's our enemy. That's Satan himself. He is waiting like a, a roaring lion. He's prowling around looking for those who are unawares. And even early in Scripture, Genesis chapter 4, God tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Be aware, sin is here, Cain. You're heading in a direction, 
It's not going to turn out well for you. Be aware. It is a determined enemy that is determined to control you. Don't let it. And like Cain, we are powerless against such determined enemies. The history of Israel is littered with what's called apostasy. Blatant disobedience to the commands and desires of God. And if you don't believe me, just read the book of Judges and you'll understand. In fact, we can't get past three chapters of Genesis before we encounter the outright sinful rebellion of humanity. And this is the state of every human being born from the moment of conception. Sinful, unrighteous, rebellious against God. See, in speaking of all people who are under the power and the rule of sin... This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. This is my favorite passage, and I know people think that I'm nuts for saying this is my favorite passage. But Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, this is what, or 10, 10 through 18, this is what it says. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." This is Paul describing the state of all of humanity. We are not so innocent people. How can God send such innocent people to to hell? We're not innocent. Humanity has rebelled against the Creator God, striving to justify or to make ourselves right through doing good works, or even striving to obey the commands of God of God and the law, and ironically, obedience to the law only reveals how much of the law we actually failed to keep, because the Bible says you fail in one part, you disobey the whole thing, and all of us have lied at least once in the last year, I might say even the last 10 minutes, and if we lie once, then we've broken the whole law. So to try to obey the law just reveals how much we actually don't obey the law. We aren't as innocent as we like to think, or how doing good works only reveals how many good works we actually failed to do. We are lost. We're guilty. We are powerless against the enemy that rightly condemns us for our sinful rebellion against God. Now, this is not a happy (laughs) illustration. We like to hear, like, no, you... Mark, you're a good person. You, you work really hard to love, but you're not perfect. And that's where we need to stop because God demands that Mark be perfect. And if I am not perfect, it only reveals more that sin has control over my life. We have a determined enemy that I have no power over. I cannot, I, maybe I even just give myself a little bit of credit. I can, I can, fight against sin in my own heart only for so long. Even as a Christian, I fail to do what God commands me all the time. Because, man, that enemy is determined. 
bound and determined to distract me, to deceive me, and to lie to me and tell me that I am not a child of God. And I guarantee every single one of you, whether you're a little kid or you're an Elm Creeker, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because that's the reality of who we are as human beings. And we have to grasp this or else the next point makes absolutely no sense. If we don't grasp this, we begin to think of ourselves as awesome. Just like Israel thought they were awesome and God had to remind them, I didn't pick you because you were awesome. I picked you because I picked you. You know why I love you? Because I love you. You weren't the biggest, you weren't the greatest, you weren't the strongest, you weren't the most numerous. In fact, you were the smallest of the small. Why did I pick you? Why do I love you? To glorify myself because there is no way that somebody like this could be awesome enough to glorify me. And so I do it through you and who gets the credit for it? I get the credit for it. I love you to glorify myself. And he is right to do so. He does the same thing for us today. We have to realize the burden and the greatness of our sinfulness. You cannot truly understand. Okay, let me give this illustration. The last, the last month, this is not my notes to show grace. The last month, okay, we have done a, a quasi, as a family, we've done a quasi stay away from carbs, don't have sugars kind of diet. Just, just for the month because I don't want to do it a whole year. That's just crazy, right? You don't have sugar for 30 days, and then you grab a candy bar. What does that candy bar taste like? It is like super sweet. I mean, it's awesome, but it's super sweet, right? Now, one year ago or even six months ago, I'd have a candy bar. What was the big deal? Oh, it was sweet, but <laughs> you don't really realize how sweet it is until you don't have it anymore. This is similar to us. We have to understand the deepness and the darkness and the horribleness of our sin before we experience the sweetness of the grace of God. Because the fact that God saves me despite me, because I'm the smallest and I'm the weakest, and yet he uses me to glorify himself. Why? Because he's God. He's God. So if, if Romans chapter 3 ended there, there is no fear before the eyes, no fear of God before their eyes. If that was the end, man, it would be depressing. But for those of you who attend here on a regular basis, what's the greatest, most powerful word in the Bible? But, and amazingly, Paul uses this word right away. God does not leave his people with no way out from under the power of sin. Like he shows to Abiathar, God graciously gives eternal life to not so innocent people. And he does it through his true King, Jesus Christ. Verses 10 through 18 would be depressing and hopeless if God had stopped at that point, but he didn't. And through Paul, this is what he says. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. I want you to hear these words. I want you to just soak these in, okay? He just got done talking about how unrighteous all of humanity is and there is no hope for them in and of themselves. And he says, but 
Now the righteousness of God has been manifested or has been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, listen to this, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God has been revealed not through our good works. This is me now. This isn't Paul. The righteousness of God has been revealed not through our good works, but through the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all believe, who believe. Why was Abiathar saved? Because God kept his word. And he showed grace to someone who did not deserve it. Yes, we are far from innocent in the eyes of God. And I think we need to remember that. We're not innocent in the eyes of God. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has fallen short of his glory. But we who are not innocent, which is all of us, were redeemed. We're not innocent. We're redeemed. We are bought back from the power of sin and death. We are shown grace. We are given eternal life by the blood of the King. Christ shed his blood on the cross, turned away the wrath of God for our sinful rebellion against our Creator. Christ's blood doesn't make us innocent. He makes us redeemed. He adopts us as His children with all the rights of of someone who was born into the family. No unrighteousness is held against those who run to the safety of the presence of the King. No unrighteousness is held against those who run to the safety of the presence of the King. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not by your works. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Or John 14, 6. This is Christ's words. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We want to strive to get to heaven. We want to hopefully do more good than bad. It's not enough. Or Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me. Again, this is Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you burdened by the cares of this world and the burden and the weight of your own sin? Then run to the king. Are you lost in this world? Are you overwhelmed by guilt and shame? Then run to the king. 
Are you a child of God? Are you redeemed and bought with the precious blood of Christ? Even we have to be reminded that we have been saved by faith, not by works. We've been saved by grace, not by works. We have been saved by the gift of God, not a gift of ours to Him, as if He needs us. This is why we remember Christ's sacrifice through the bread and the drink of communion. Christ says, remember what I did for you. If I didn't do this, you would still be underneath the old covenant and you'd be killing lambs and goats and oxen and it would reek and it would stink and it would be horrible. And so I took that upon myself and I sacrificed myself. My blood is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't forget who you are. When you run to the king, when you run to Jesus Christ and we remember what he accomplished at the cross through the shedding of his blood, the eternal salvation of those who believe. This is, this is solemn. We take it seriously. This doesn't save us. We've already been saved. This is a reminder. But yet, as we take the bread, as we take the drink, and we remember as God's people, remember who we are, that we are not innocent, and yet we're redeemed only by the blood of Christ that wells up joy and praise and worship and glory to God that He would love me despite me. Christ commands us to remember what He accomplished. And so today as we take the meal together as a family of God, remember that it is, it's to Him that we run. The only way and reason we could take this correctly is because we are saved by Christ. So that, that brings the whole thing. If you're not a believer, we do open communion. You are welcome to join us if you are a child of God. If you have been saved by grace through faith, not by works. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved you are welcome to join us. We don't have communion, please. We don't have salvation, please. That's between you and God. And so you will be held accountable for this. And we take this seriously. This is more than just stuff. Yes, it's just bread. Yes, it's just drink. But it's called obedience to the commands of Christ. And when we do that, our love for Him and our joy and our worship of Him grows more and more and more. And so, if you do not know Christ and you have not been saved by grace through faith, you cannot understand what it means to run to the King. You cannot understand what it means to remember how He has redeemed us and adopted us. But if you have, if you are a child, then together as a family, as God's people, let us give the King of kings and the Lord of lords the glory, praise, and honor that he rightly deserves as we obey him. So when you are ready, you can go back, get in line, take the bread, take the cup, come back to your seats, and then together as a people of God, we will take the communion and remember what Christ did for us. So whenever you are ready,